Chapter Thirteen of Fairy Islands of the South Seas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. Fairy Islands of the South Seas by James Norman Hall and Charles Nordoff. Chapter Thirteen. At the House of Taree, you will not find Ahu Ahu under that name on any chart, and it would be equally useless to search for Nukaturi. Yet both islands exist, and I like their ancient names better than the modern ones. Glance at your maps, and you will see the eastern Pacific dotted with islands bearing names like Jarvis, Malden, and Starbuck, names which suggest no more than the thought of some wandering skipper immortalizing himself by adding new dangers to the chart. Then think of Nuta Tyre, the immortal name of an island known wherever the old Polynesians gathered to tell their tales. Nukatari, the object of the war fleet's voyage. It needs a dull imagination not to feel a stir. It was on Nukatari that I found that curious fellow Tari at home. Friends often smile at my passion for wild fowl, yet I owe this peaceful adventure entirely to a duck. For several days I had been waiting a chance to photograph the skyline of the island. And when, one afternoon, the clouds about the peaks disappeared, I put my camera into a small outrigger canoe and paddled down the lagoon, on the lookout for the viewpoint of greatest beauty. I had gone a number of miles, and the sun was low, when I found the view I wanted. Though the silhouette of Nukateri was clear-cut, there were clouds in the west, and the light was not strong enough for an instantaneous picture. The lagoon is narrow at this point. There was nothing to do but paddle out to the reef and set up my tripod in the shallow wash of the sea. In this manner I made ten exposures. Pretty things they must have been with the long evening shadows, the foreshore of dark bush beyond the water, the high profile of peaks and jagged ridges against the sky. I folded the steel tripod and stowed the camera in its case. Just as I pushed off to paddle back to the village, I heard the whimper of a duck's wings in leisurely flight. I have a very fair acquaintance with the ducks of the northern hemisphere, which winter in considerable numbers in Hawaii and occasionally drift down as far as Perrin Island, nine degrees south of the equator. But though it must be well known in scientific quarters, the odd, non-migratory duck of the South Seas is a puzzle to me. It is an unsocial bird, this Polynesian cousin of the mallard, a lover of solitude, a haunter of thick woods and lonely valleys. Though I have seen them many times in the distance, I have been unable to obtain a specimen so far. I used to wonder how they survived the swarms of bloodthirsty island rats until a friend wrote me from the cook group on top of the razor-backed ridge behind the plantation the dogs put up a duck almost under our feet i found the nest well hidden in the fern a beautifully constructed affair edged with a combing of down curled inward there were eight eggs standing on end and arranged to occupy the least possible space when the ducklings appear the old bird must carry them down one at a time a thousand feet or more to the swampy feeding grounds I could tell by the sound of its wings that the duck approaching me over the lagoon was closer than any I had seen. In my eagerness for a glimpse, I forgot all about cameras and canoes. I flung myself around to look, intent and open-mouthed, 
Next moment the outrigger heaved up with the speed of a rolling porpoise, described a flashing arc through the air, and smacked heavily into the water, closing over my head. It was a fast bit of comedy. The coral anchor and my tripod went to the bottom. I caught the camera instinctively, and I rose sputtering to the surface, where I managed to balance it on the flat bottom of the canoe. Then, as the water was not deep, I had on nothing but a singlet and a peru. I swam down to get the tripod and started for shore, pushing the canoe before me. Ahead on the beach, two girls and a boy were dancing and rolling in the sand. As the water left my ears, I could hear their screams of joy. For the moment, I found myself unable to join the mirth. My thoughts dwelt on cameras and on a story I had heard the night before, how a fisherman not far from where I was had felt a tug at his waist as he swam with face submerged, watching the bottom and turned to see a shark of imposing sides nip off the largest fish on his string. The closer sight of me seemed to redouble the appreciation of my audience, but it was not until I was splashing in the shallows that I was able to smile. Then I saw that the elder of the girls was Apokura, the wife of Tari. She had been washing clothes at the mouth of the little stream and came forward, bare-armed and smiling maliciously, to greet me. "'Ah, you have come to bathe in the sea,' she said, as I took her hand, and at the enormous joke all three fell into such a convulsion of laughter that they were obliged to sink down on the sand once more. When she had caught her breath, she turned to call her husband. "'Hey, Tari!' Itari, Ari my ikani. A moment later he stepped out of the bush, rubbing from his eyes the sleep of an afternoon nap, and I was shaking his hand. I knew Tari rather well, and have spent a good deal of time within a few miles of where he lives, yet I had been to his house only once before. This is characteristic of the islands. There is an agreeable indifference about the relations of white men down here a careless friendliness I found pleasanter than the more strained and effusive society of civilized places. In every part of the world, of course, this tranquil simplicity, the essence of the finest manner, is to be found among the few who have studied the art of living, but the average one of us is neither sure enough of himself nor sufficiently indifferent to the opinion of others, handicapped by an abnormal sense of obligation." We permit ourselves both to bore and to be bored. In certain respects, the native is a very well-bred man. Perhaps the white intruder has caught something of his manner. Or it may be that distance from home brings life into a truer focus. In any case, one deals with the white man of the islands without consciousness of an effort either to entertain or to impress. When you stop at the house of a strange planter, he will offer you a whiskey and soda. If you refuse, nothing more will be said of the matter. At home, with a parching throat, it is quite conceivable that you might tell your chance host not to bother, looking forward with hopeful hypocrisy, to his persuasion and your own inevitable acceptance. I think I like Tari the better for not having asked me to his house. Now the hazard had brought me to the door. He made me feel that I was really welcome. The house was set on a little rise of land, with a view of the lagoon at the end of an avenue of tall coconut palms. The broad veranda, set with steamer chairs and scarlet-bordered akatui mats, gave me a garden of small flowering trees. Fragrampai, Tari Tahiti, Maid of Mori, Queen of the Night, 
Tari showed me to a corner room and mixed a rum punch while his wife put buttons on a fresh suit of drill. Dressed in his clothes, I strolled into the living room to wait while he was changing for dinner. The place was large, and one might have spent hours examining the things it contained. The fruit of twenty years in the South Seas. There were wreaths of bright-colored shell, the favorite parting gift of the islands, from the Pomutas, from Aretina, from Aetuki and Manikis. There were fans from Maniki, woven in patterns of dyed panadas, and savage island fans decorated with human hair. Ranged on a series of shelves, I found a notable collection of penas, the tarot mashers of eastern Polynesia's implements in which the culture of each group expresses itself. I was able to recognize the pestle of Magdalene, eight-sided and carved with almost geometrical perfection, from a stalactite of pink lime, the Marquesian Pinot of dark volcanic stone, with its curious phallic handle, the implement of old Tahiti gracefully designed and smoothly finished by a people far removed from savagery, the rare and beautiful Pinot of Mapiti, unobtainable today, perfect as though turned on a lathe and adorned with a fantastic handle of ancient and forgotten significance. Mother of Pearl Bonito Hooks, from a dozen groups, where there, and on a table, I saw a rare toki-tiki from Mangnia, an odd thing which, for want of a better name, might be called a peace adds. It is a slender little tower of carved wood, set with tiers of windows, and surmounted by a stone adds head, lashed on with wrapplings of senate, above which extend a pair of pointed ears. The carving in the close-grained yellow wood of the puna is exquisitely done. I recognize the standard patterns of the islands, the shark's teeth, the dropping water, and the intricate tiki tangata. The significance of the peace adas was religious and ceremonial. The story goes that when, at the end of a period of fighting, two Magian clans decided to make peace, the adas played a leading role in the attendant ceremony. A handful of earth was dug up with its head, to show that the ground might now be cultivated, and the people were told that they might come and go unmolested, freely as the air through the window-like openings on its sides. Terry had real adazes as well, the tools with which trees were chopped down and canoes hollowed out, stone implements of a perfection I have never seen elsewhere, carved out of the basaltic rock, hard and close as steel, smoothed by processes at which one can only guess sharp and symmetrical as the product of modern machines. The Marquesian curiosities interested me most of all, relics of the dark valleys which harbored the most strangely fascinating of all the island peoples. There were ornaments of old men's beards arranged in little senate-bound tufts, crinkled in yellowish-white, baked clubs of ironwood, elegantly carved and smooth, with countless oilings, ear pendants, cut in delicate filigree from the teeth of sperm whales. Grotesque little wooden gods, monstrous and bizarre ceremonial food bowls of Tamanu, adorned with the rich and graceful designs of a culture now forever gone. One felt that the spirits of forgotten artists hovered about the place, beckoning one back to days a century before Melville set foot in the valley of Tepe to scenes of a strange beauty on which mankind will never look again. Some day, 
perhaps in a future less remote than we liked to fancy. Nature's careless hand may once more set the stage for a similar experiment, but the people sequestered in these gloomy islands will be of another blood, and the result can never be the same. The Marquesians themselves, if one is to believe the students of antique mankind, were the result of a racial retrogression. Their continental forebearers knew iron and pottery, and the culture of rice, things lost in the eastward push which brought them to the nine islands of Eva. One curious trinket, labeled Fatu Heva, caught my eye, a squat little figure, carved in a sawed-off length of yellow ivory. I examined it closely. It had the air of being at least a hundred years old, and the concentric rings of this section showed it to be the tooth or tusk of some large animal. Where could the Marquesian carver have obtained such a lump of ivory on which to exercise his skill? Could it be possible that this was the tusk of an elephant, carved not one hundred, but many centuries ago, and preserved by the people of these distant islands, an immortal relic of the days when their ancestors left Persia or the Indian hills? I looked again. It was large enough to be part of a small tusk but the section was flatter than any elephant ivory I had seen. What could it be? Not the tooth of a hippopotamus, it was too large for that. Not the sort of a norwhale, which shows a betraying spiral twist. Then I thought of a walrus tusk, and the story seemed clear. Seventy-five or a hundred years ago, some whaling vessel, after a venture in the northern ice, must have sailed south and put in at Fatuhiva, for water or wood or fruit. They had killed walrus off Cape Lisbon or in the Katsibu Sound, and as was the habit of whalers, some of the tusks had been kept for scrimshaw work. Knowing the Polynesian passion for ivory, in Tonga it was death for any but those of the highest rank to take the teeth of a stranded sperm whale. It is not difficult to imagine the rest. A lantern-jawed Yankee harpooner, perhaps, trading his walrus tusk for a canoe-load of fruit or the favors of an exceptionally pretty girl. I was examining a paddle from Manahiki, a graceful narrow-bladed thing, carved out of porcupine wood and set with diamonds of mother-of-pearl. When Tyree came in, "'Pretty paddle, isn't it?' he remarked. "'You won't find a more curious one in the Pacific. Notice the way that reinforcing ridge runs down the blade from the haft?' Everything has a meaning in primitive stuff of this sort. The original pattern from which this has descended probably came from a land of little trees, where the paddles had to be made in two pieces, blade lashed to handle. Look at the shape of it. More like a Zulu, a Saigi, than anything else. It is a weapon primarily. A thrust of it would kill a naked man. The Manahiki people spend a lot of their time in canoes on the open sea after bonito by day and flying fish by night, and these waters swarm with sharks. They have developed a paddle into a weapon of defense. The Samoans carried a special shark club for the same purpose. I ask his opinion on the disputed question of sharks, whether in general the shark is a real menace to the swimmer or the paddler of a small canoe. I heard a lot of loose talk, he said. How learned societies have offered rewards for a genuine instance of a shark attacking a man. But I have seen enough to know 
that there is no room for argument. Some idiot goes swimming off a vessel in shark-infested water and talks all the rest of his life, perhaps of the silly fears of others, never realizing that he owes his life to the fact that none of the sharks about him chance to be more than usually hungry. The really hungry shark is a raving murderer, dangerous as a wounded buffalo, reckless as a mad dog. I have seen one tear the paddle from the hand of a man beside me and sink its teeth over and over again in a frenzy in the bottom of a heavy canoe. How long do you suppose a swimmer would have lived? And it's not only the big sharks that are dangerous. I remember one day, when a lot of us were bathing in Penurin Lagoon, suddenly one of the boys gave a shout and began to struggle with something in the waist-deep water, clotted with blood by the time I got there. A small tiger shark, scarcely a yard long, had gouged a piece of flesh out of his leg, and continued an attack until a big kanaka seized it by the tail and waded to the beach, holding the devilish little brute, snapping its jaws and writhing frantically at arm's length. As he reached the dry sand, the native allowed his arm to relax for an instant. The shark set its teeth in his side and tore out a mouthful that nearly cost the man his life. The voice of Apuka was summoning us to eat. Kaihaye, she called. Arimai Kaoroa. Tari's dining room was a section of the side veranda, screened off with lattices of bamboo, where we found a table set for two, fresh with flowers and damask. Apakura sat cross-legged on a mat nearby. She was weaving a hat of native grass and looked up from her work now and then to speak to the girl who served us admonishing, scolding, and joking in turn. Tari followed my glance and smiled as he caught the eye of his wife. "'Probably strikes you as odd that she doesn't sit with us,' he said to me. I tried to get her into the way of it at first, but it's no good. For generations the women of her family have been forbidden to eat in the presence of men, and the old tapu dies hard. Then she hates chairs. When she sits with me she is wretchedly uncomfortable.' and bolts her food in a scared kind of way that puts me off my feed. It is best to let them follow their own customs. She likes to sit on the floor there and order her cousin about. When they're finished, they'll adjourn to the cookhouse for dinner and discuss you until your ears tingle. Housekeeping down here is a funny, haphazard business, hopeless if one demands what one had at home, easy and pleasant if one is willing to compromise a bit. To a man who understands the natives at all, the servant question does not exist. They will jump at a chance to attach themselves to your household. The trouble is to keep them away. It isn't wages they are after. I pay these people nothing at all for cooking and washing and looking after the place. They like to be where tea and sugar and ship biscuit are in plenty, and they like to be amused. An occasional stranger coming and going like yourself gives them no end of food for talk. I have a phonograph I let them play and a seine I let them take out for a day's fishing now and then. Once a month, perhaps, I kill a pig and give a bit of a party, and once or twice in a year I get a bullock, and let them invite all the relatives to a real umbakai. In return for all this, they look after my fifty acres of coconuts, make my copra, do my housework, cooking, and laundry, and provide me with all the native food I can use. It strikes me as a fair bargain, from my point of view at least. It is understood that they are not to bother me unless there is work to do or they want to see me. They never set foot in the house. 
My greatest trouble has been to get some idea of regularity into their heads. These people cannot understand why we prefer to eat our dinner at the same hour every day. Where contact with the white man has not changed their habits, they eat whenever they are hungry, at midnight, at four in the morning, if they chance to be awake. Even here they can't understand my feelings when dinner is an hour or two late. The cousin of Apakura took away the remnants of a dish of raw fish and brought us a platter heaped with roast breadfood, taro, yams, and sweet potatoes served in with a picture of teri akari, the sea water and coconut sauce worthy of a place on any table. It is only the uncivilized white who turns up his nose at native food. The island's vegetables are both wholesome and delicious. It cannot be cooked better than in a mori oven. A certain amount of European food is necessary to health, but the sallow provincial white man, who takes a sort of racial pride in living on the contents of tins, need not be surprised that the climate of the islands does not agree with him. It is the same type, usually with no other cause for pride, than the fact that he chanced to be born white, whose voice is most frequently heard disclaiming on the subject of color. Everywhere in the islands, of course, the color line exists, a subtle barrier between the races, not to be crossed with impunity. But the better sort of white man is ready to admit that God, who presumably made him, also made the native, and made the Polynesian a rather fine piece of work. Terry had stepped across with eyes open, counting the cost, realizing all that he must relinquish. He is not a man to make such a decision lightly. In his case, the step meant severing the last material tie with home, giving up forever the Englishman's dream of white children and an old age in the pleasant English countryside. His children, if children came to him, would have skins tinted by a hundred generations of hot sunlight, and look at him with strange dark eyes, liquid and shy, the eyes of an elder race, begotten when the world was young. His old age would be spent on this remote and forgotten bit of land, immensely isolated from the ancestral background to which most men return at last. As the shadows gathered in the evening of his life, there would be long days of reading and reflection. Stretched in a steamer chair on this same veranda, while the trade hummed through the palm tops and the sea rumbled softly on the reef, at night, lying wakeful as old men do, in a hush broken only by the murmur of a lonely sea, his thoughts would wander back, a little sadly, as the thoughts of an old man must, along a hundred winding paths of memory, through scenes wild and lovely, savage, stern, and gay. Dimly out of the past would appear the faces of men and women, long since dead, and already only vaguely remembered, the companions of his youth, once individually vibrant with the current life, now moldering alike in forgotten graves. They would be a strangely assorted company, Tari's ghosts. Men of all races, scholars, soldiers, sportsmen, skippers of trading vessels, pearl divers of the atolls, nurses of the Red Cross, Englishmen of his own station in life, dark-eyed daughters of the islands with shining hair, and the beauty of sleek wild creatures, bewitching and soulless, half-bold and half-afraid. Whether for good or ill, wisely or unwisely as the case may be, no man could say that Tari had not lived. I wondered what the verdict would be when in the days to come he cast up the balance of his life. 
Apakura ceased her plating and began to measure off the narrow braid, delicately woven in a pattern of black and white, which would eventually be sewn in spirals to make a hat. My hat, by the way, for it had been promised to me weeks before. One fathom, two fathom, three fathoms. Another two fathoms were needed. Work for the odd moments of a month. Some day, in an uncertain future and on a distant island, perhaps the cabin boy of a schooner would step ashore and present me with a box containing this same hat, superbly new, decorated with a gay puggaree and lined with satin, bearing my initials in silk. Meanwhile, though I would have given much for a new hat, there was nothing to do but wait. Like other things of native make, a hat cannot be bought with money. The process of manufacture is too laborious to be other than a matter of goodwill. Think of the work that goes into one of these hats. First of all, far off in the mountains, the stalks of the ale, Eredus verhydes, must be gathered. These are split, then thoroughly dried, and the two halves scraped thin as paper before being split again into tiny strips of fiber less than a sixteenth of an inch wide. A certain amount of the aho, depending on the pattern to be woven, must now be dyed, usually black or in a shade of brown. From a dozen to twenty of these strands, dyed and undyed, are plaited into a flexible braid of which the hat is built up, a task requiring extraordinary patience and skill. Such hats are made only for relatives and close friends. If an unmarried girl gives one to a man, the gift has the same significance as the pair of earrings he would give in return. When a native boy appears with a new and gorgeous hat, the origin of which is veiled in doubt, village gossip hums until the truth is known. Even the classic sewing circle of New England can show no faster or more efficient work than these artless brown women. Standing knee-deep in the waters of some dashing stream, prattling, laughing, shattering the reputations of absent sisters as they pound and wring the soapy clothes. When dinner was over, Terry was filling his pipe in the living room. I took up the lamp for a glance at the titles of his shelves of books. Side by side with the transactions of the Polynesian Society and the modern works of S. Percy Smith and MacMillan Brown, I found Mariner's Tonga, Abraham Fornder's account of the Polynesian race, its origin and migration. Lieutenant William Bly's Voyage of the South Seas for the purpose of conveying the breadfruit tree to the West Indies in His Majesty's ship, the Bounty, and the Polynesian researches of William Ellis. I took down a volume of Ellis, crossed the room to glance over my shoulder at the quaint title page. It was evident that he loved his books. Tahiti is the most interesting of all islands, he said, as we sat down, and the best accounts of old Tahiti are those of Bly and Ellis. Bly wrote from the standpoint of a worldly man, and though he was unable to speak the language fluently, and stopped only a few months on the island, he has left an extraordinarily vivid and detailed picture of the native life before European religion and trade began their work of change. Ellis was a missionary of the finest sort, broad-minded as religious men go, inspired by the purest of motives, a close and sympathetic observer, and able to appreciate much of the beauty and interest of the old life. 
if you believe that one branch of mankind is justified in almost forcibly spreading its religion among the other races and that trade should follow the bible you will enjoy every page of ellis his point of view concerning temporal matters is summed up in this volume at the end of a chapter on hawaii here it is the intercourse with foreigners has taught many of the chiefs to prefer a bedstead to the ground and a mattress to a mat to sit on a chair eat at a table use a knife and fork etc this we think advantageous not only to those who visit them for purposes of commerce but to the natives themselves and it increases their wants and consequently stimulates to industry there you hear the voice of the mechanical age which began a hundred years ago and ended i rather fancy when we fired the last shots of the war increase their wants advertise speed up production whatever the implacable cost make the ways smooth for the swift wheels of progress those are the germs of a disease from which the world may need another century to recover but the change in these islands was only the insignificant corollary of a greater change throughout the world ellis and his kind were no more than the inevitable instruments of a harsh providence ellis's book was published in eighteen thirty one during the eighty-nine years that have passed since that date, we have seized the islands and profited largely by them, as coaling stations, as naval bases, as sources of valuable raw material, as markets for our surplus manufactured goods. What have we done for the natives in return? Instead of the industrious, piously happy, and increasing communities foreseen by the missionaries as the result of their efforts, one finds a depressed and dying people robbed of their old beliefs and secretly skeptical of the new we who conduct our wars in so humane and chivalrous a spirit have taught them to abolish human sacrifice and to stop the savage fighting which horrified the first messengers of christianity but in the case of the islands of which ellis wrote the benefits of civilization end here infanticide is now a punishable crime and really practiced but perhaps it is well to have children and to kill a certain number of them as to be rendered sterile by imported disease after all infanticide repulsive though it may be is only a primitive form of the birth control which is making its appearance in europe and america as the continents the white man's islands approach the limit of population as for true religious faith of the kind which the missionaries sincerely hope to instill that plays in the life of the kanaka a part of about the same importance as in the life of the average white man don't think i am cynical in saying this i respect and envy men who possess real faith they are the ones by whom every great task is accomplished but the religion of the native is less than skin deep his observance of the sabbath day a survival of the old tempu his church-going and singing of hymns, satisfying the social instinct, the love of gossip, the desire to be seen in fine clothes, replaced the old-time dance, wrestling matches, and exhibitions of the Aori. You have seen something of the outer islands, where the people are half-savage even today, still swayed by what we call heathen superstition. Now consider Tahiti, where the people for more than a hundred years have been subjected to the exhortations of an intensity almost unparalleled if it is possible to inject our religion into their blood it must have been accomplished in tahiti but in my opinion 
the efforts of three generations of missionaries have produced a result surprisingly small on this island the most civilized of the south pacific where the heathen superstition is far from dead to-day before the schooners took to penury lagoon we used to spend the hurricane season in papeete i never cared much for towns i usually put in the time wandering about the more remote districts civilization has barely scratched the inner life of tahiti men who wear trousers and go to church by day would fear to sleep at night unless a lamp burned in the house to repel the vera ino and ghostly tambapuo of their ancestors if a girl falls ill the native doctor a lineal descendant of the heathen priest is called in what have you done during the past week he asks you spoke harshly to that old woman ah i know there was a cause he administers a remedy in the form of a certain bath or a sprinkling with the water of a young coconut and takes his leave if the girl recovers it is a remarkable instance of the doctor's skill she dies it is proof that her offense was too grave to be remedied perhaps a ghost walks and the native doctor is again consulted it is your wife who comes to trouble you at night how was she buried evidently the grave was opened and the body found to be lying face down when turned on her back and again covered with the earth the lady is content and seizes her disruptible prowlings i am not convinced that all of these things are absurdity i told you when we were on the schooner about some of my curious experiences in this group there are happenings fully as strange on tahiti and moria you must have heard of what the natives call vera eno a vague variety of devil a sort of earth spirit quite unhuman and intensely malignant the people are not fond of discussing this subject and their beliefs have become so tangled that it is impossible to get a straightforward story but as nearly as i can make out numbers of these vera eno are thought to lie in wait whenever a man or woman is dying struggling fiercely with one another in the effort to catch and devour the departing human soul if the spirit makes its escape the first time the ravening watchers do not give up hope but linger about the body to which the soul is apt to return from time to time during the day or two following death the human soul at this stage is considered nearly as malignant and dangerous as the vera eno you can see what a garbled business it is sometimes an earth spirit enters the corrupted body and walks abroad at night on one subject the natives all agree the struggles of the praying spirits and the human soul are apt to be marked by splashes and pools of blood whose blood i have never learned to my satisfaction a friend of mine an educated and skeptical englishman in whose words i have the utmost confidence was the witness of one of these blood-splashing affairs he lived on mura just across from tahiti hapiti was his village i think one afternoon he whistled to his fox terrier and strolled to a nearby house where the body of a native an old fellow he had liked lay in state surrounded by mourning relatives as he stood on the veranda the dog began to growl furiously and at the same moment the oldest man present a sort of a doctor and authority on spiritual matters shouted out suddenly that everyone must leave the house the native explained afterward that he had caught a glimpse of something like a small comet a shapeless and luminous body 
trailing a fiery tail, rushing horizontally towards the rear of the building. The people gathered outside in a bit of a panic. The fox terrier seemed to have gone mad on the porch, alternately cowing and leaping forward with frenzied growls towards some invisible thing. All at once there was a great racket of overturned furniture inside the house, and the next moment the Englishman saw gouts of what looked like blood splashing over the outer wall and floor of the veranda. The dog was covered. It was a week before his coat was clean. The net result of the affair was that the veranda needed a cleaning, a couple of tables were overturned, and the body of the old man considerably disturbed. But its most curious feature is the fact that my friend, suspecting native trickery and the desire to impress a white man, took a specimen of the blood across to Papati, where he got the hospital people to examine it. It was human blood beyond a doubt. What do you make of that? The other evening, when I was having a yarn with Apakura, she told me about another kind of Varoino, who figures as the villain in the tale of a Polynesian Cinderella. It may interest you. A great many years ago on Ahuahu, there was a man named Tatu, one of Apakura's family, a renowned fighting man who dabbled in sorcery when there were no wars to be fought. Tall, handsome, and famous, it was no wonder that Tatu was pursued by all the island girls, scheming sisters in particular, who went so far as to build a hut near where he lived. Hoping to catch the eye of the hero, they took their finest ornaments and robes of tapa, and went to live in the hut, accompanied by their little sister, Tedrina, who was to act as a drudge about the house. Young Tedrera had no designs on Tatu, and she possessed no finery to make herself beautiful in the, his eyes. But one day, when she was gathering wood in the bush, she chanced to pass. Stopping to speak with her, he was struck with her goodness and beauty, and from that time the two met every day in the forest. The older sisters, meanwhile, were the victims of a mischievous earth spirit which haunted the vicinity and visited them in the guise of Tatu. They were triumphant when it was known that they had won the warriors' favors, all their friends would be wild with jealousy. They could not resist printing themselves before their little sister. Tatu loves us, they told her. He comes every day when you are off gathering wood. But that is impossible, said Tatera, for Tatu is my lover. He meets me each day in the forest. The older girls laughed scornfully at this, but Tatera said no more until she met her lover in the evening. When she told him what her sisters had said, he laughed. It is Varaino, he informed her, a mischievous spirit whose true appearance is that of a hideous old man. Tomorrow I will prove to your sisters that it is not I who visit them. That night Tatu sat up late, weaving a magic net of hibiscus bark, a net which had the property of causing a spirit to assume its true shape. Next afternoon Tatu and Tetrera stole up to the house, where the spirit, in the form of a splendid warrior, was talking and laughing with the two sisters. Tatu cast the net. Next moment the spirit was howling and struggling in the magic meshes, unable to escape, moaning as it shriveled and changed into the appearance of an old man, gray-bearded, trembling, and hideous. The two sisters shrank back in loathing and mortification while Tatu told them that he had chosen Titterera to be his wife. 
As he finished his story, Tyree rose, crossed the room to a bookshelf, and returned to hand me a volume bound in worn yellow leather. "'I am going to turn in now,' he remarked. "'We'll go fishing in the morning, if you will plan to stop over. Take this to your room. If you are not sleepy, it is worth running over.' Bly's account of the Voyage of the Bounty, published at Dublin in 1792. Propped up in bed with a lamp burning on the table beside me, I opened Bly's quaint and earnest account of his voyage, the mutiny, the commander's passage in an open boat from Tonga to Timor, and the settlement of the mutineers on Picatrin Island. I have been made familiar by a voluminous and sentimental literature, but I had never before come across the story of Bly's residence among the natives of Tahiti one hundred and thirty-two years ago. More than any other eastern island, perhaps Tahiti, was the cradle of the oceanic race, called the Lap of God, by Kamakaki, the fabled Hawaiian voyager who discovered in the southern group the fountain of eternal youth. Knowing something of the island as it is today, I listened with interest when Terry remarked, Civilization has barely scratched the inner life of Tahiti. Bly was a close observer blessed with insight and a pleasant sense of humor. At the time of his visit, the people were untouched by European influence. It is interesting to check his observation against what any traveler may see nowadays, to judge for oneself how deeply the civilization of Europe has been able to modify the peculiarities of Polynesian character. The family of Pomer, of which the chief two, called Utu by Cook, Tina by Bly, was the founder, owed its rise to power largely to the friendship of the English. Bly often entertained Tina and his wife, Idea, on board the bounty. They must have been amusing parties. Tina was fed by one of his attendants, who sat by him for that purpose, and I must do him the justice to say he kept his attendant constantly employed. There was indeed little reason to complain of want of appetite to any of my guests. As the women are not allowed to eat in the presence of the men, Idea dined with some of her companions about an hour afterward in private, except that her husband, Tina, favored them with his company and seemed to have entirely forgotten that he had already dined. In his rambles about the island, Bly noticed precisely what strikes one today. In any house we wish to enter, we always experienced a kind reception, and without officiousness, the Otheteans have the most perfect easiness of manners, equally free from forwardness and formality. When they offer refreshments, if they are not accepted, they do not think of offering them the second time, for they have not the least idea of the ceremonious kind of refusal which expects a second invitation. Bly was not deceived like the French philosophers who read Bougainville's account of Tahiti and rhapsodize about the beauty of a life free from all restraint. He remarked the deep-rooted system of class inherent in the island race, a system of which the outward marks are gone, but which is far from dead today. Among the people so free from ostentation as the Othelians, and the manners are so simple and natural, the strictness with which the punctilios of rank are observed is surprising. I know not if any action, however meritorious, can elevate a man above the class in which he was born unless he were to acquire sufficient power to confer dignity on himself. If any woman of the inferior classes has a child by an eerie, 
it is not suffered to live. Bly's observation on the gay and humorous character of the people and their extraordinary levity might have been written yesterday. Some of my constant visitors had observed that we always drank His Majesty's health as soon as the cloth was removed, but they were by this time become so fond of wine that they would frequently remind me of the health of the middle by dinner by calling out, King George Erie, no Brittany, and would banter me if the glass was not filled to the brim. Nothing could exceed the mirth and joyality of these people when they met on board. One day Tinga told Bly of an island to the eastward of Ori four or five days' sail, and that there were large animals upon it with eight legs. The truth of this account he very strenuously insisted upon and wished me to go thither with him. As I was at a loss to know whether or not, Tina himself gave credit to this whimsical and fabulous account. For though they have credulity sufficient to believe anything, however improbable, they are at the same time so much addicted to the species of wit which we call humbug that it is frequently difficult to distinguish whether they are in jest or in earnest. On another occasion, while walking near a place of burial, Bly was surprised by a sudden outcry of grief. As I expressed a desire to see the distressed person, Tina took me to the place, where I found a number of women, one of whom was the mother of a young female child that lay dead. On seeing us, their mourning not only immediately ceased, but, to my astonishment, they all burst into an immoderate fit of laughter and while we remained appeared much diverted at our visit. I told Tina the woman had no sorrow for her child, otherwise her grief would not have so easily subsided, on which he jocosely told her to cry again. They did not, however, resume their mourning in our presence. This strange behavior would incline us to think them hard-hearted and unfeeling, did we not know that they are fond parents, in general, very affectionate. It is therefore to be ascribed to their extreme levity of disposition, and it is probable that death does not appear to them with so many terrors as it does to people of a more serious cast. When the surgeon of the bounty died and was buried ashore, some of the chiefs were very inquisitive about what was to be done with the surgeon's cabin, on account of apparitions. They said when a man died in Otahili, and was carried over to the Tupapau, that as soon as night came he was surrounded by spirits, and if any person went there by himself, they would devour him. Therefore, they said, not less than two people together should go into the surgeon's cabin for some time. I thought of Terry and his tales of Varaunio. Four generations of schools and churches have failed to work a metamorphosis. I read on till drowsiness overcame me, and the pages blurred before my eyes. It was late, and the night was very calm. A vagrant night breeze wandering down from the mountains rustled gently among the fronds of the old palms around the house. When the rustling ceased, so faint as to be almost inaudible, I could hear the far-off whisper of the sea. The world about me was asleep. I roused myself with an effort, adjusted the mosquito net, and blew out the lamp. End of chapter 13